everybody. It's good to see you. It's uh, beautiful to hear everyone uh, sing God's truths back to God and wait and worship and praise and sing God's truth over one another uh, is a beautiful thing to uh, hear and to participate in. So as we continue in worshiping this morning, uh, I'd ask that you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Now, if you have a Bible with you, um, if you don't, we have some in the back. We'd love to give one to you as a gift. Uh, and if not, uh, we have uh, some up on the screen. Or if you want to look it up on your phone or, or whatever, um, I encourage you to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. As we continue the book of Hebrews, we're approaching the end. In the next couple of weeks, we'll uh, knock out uh, this great 10-week, uh, sorry, 10-month study we've been uh, in the book of Hebrews. So uh, let me pray as we continue to worship together through uh, the reading of God's word this morning. Uh, Father God in heaven, Lord, we thank you uh, that you are a good and gracious God. Lord, that in Christ we are forgiven, we are new creations, that you raise us from death to life, that you change our hearts from uh, hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, from uh, dead hearts to hearts that beat with life and joy. And God, I pray now as we continue to worship you, uh, as we've done so through singing and we will continue to do through prayer and communion and and God, now through the reading of your word, your scriptures, Lord, I pray uh, that by your Holy Spirit who inspired scripture, uh, Lord, that you would give our minds understanding, that you would give our hearts uh, a reception of the gospel. Lord, that you would continue to transform us as your people together to be more like Christ. Uh, God, I ask that you do this for your glory, for our joy, and that the good news of Jesus would go out to the nations. We ask this in Christ's good and holy name. Amen. I'm in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Friends in Christ, we have a new identity and a new community together. As citizens of God's unshakable kingdom. And this brings us security and freedom in worship and in obedience in all of life. And this is good news for us. The movie Office Space is a great comedy. <laughs> it tells the story of a guy named Peter Gibbons, a guy who is stuck in his job, a job that he does not like, a job that every day is faced with mundane tasks Quirky co-workers, eight bosses breathing down his neck, telling him what to do. And he makes the conclusion one day that he just doesn't want to work there anymore. He doesn't, doesn't quit. He doesn't get fired. He just decides he just doesn't want to go. Right? He doesn't want to pay bills anymore. He doesn't want to do anything anymore. And so the business calls into some consultants, two guys, both named Bob. And they're sitting there interviewing all the employees, trying to figure out how to make the business more productive. And Peter's sitting in the room with the Bobs, and he says, I have eight different bosses right now. 
So that means when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation is just to not get hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob, that will only make someone work just hard enough to not get fired. When we approach life and faith, we often approach it in that same way. We say we just want to do enough to not get fired. We want to do enough just to not get hassled, just to get by and to not pursue excellence, but just enough to not fail. Is that me? Am I the only one that's like that? We often approach life and even faith in the same way. I mean, think about this. Think about the last time you did something totally wrong. I mean, maybe it was something in utter rebellion. Somebody said, hey, man, don't do that. And you're like, oh, whatever. And you went and did it anyway. Just think about, think about a time. It could have been in your youth. Maybe you did something rebellious. Your parents said, hey, don't do that. You're like, yeah, whatever. And you snuck out and did it anyway. Nobody's ever done that? Man, you guys need to live some life. Just think about a time you did something totally wrong in rebellion. We've all been there. We've all done that. Just think. Some of you are more honest than others, but just think about it. Right? Now think about what happened in that moment. Were you motivated by rebellion? Were you motivated by disobedience? Were you motivated by doubt? Somebody said, hey, don't, don't do that in order to protect you. I'll give you a very childish example. When I was four, my mom said, don't touch the iron. The iron's hot. I was like, sure. You're right. Burned my hand. My mom was a nurse. Thankfully, we iced it up, whatever. It wasn't her fault. It was my fault. She warned me. She gave me her word. She said, I'm going to tell you a fact and a truth. That iron is hot. Obey me and don't touch it. And I, as a four-year-old disobedient child, touched it anyway. And the consequence was a burned hand. Right? It plays out differently in other areas of life, whether your boss says, hey, I need you to run this errand and come back quickly. And on the way to run your errand, you say, well, hey, I'm going to stop in at Starbucks and get a coffee. My boss will never know. Right? Now think about this. Think about a time you obeyed, but maybe with not good motivations. It's a little shadier here. Think about a time you did something right, but your motivations perhaps were not right. Hmm? This gets a little harder. Maybe it was in an area of life or an area of faith. Maybe somebody said, hey, um, here's a very simple example. Your parents. I'm just going to go back to the youth because I'm just stuck in that world, man. 94, Nirvana's never mind. I can't get it out of my head. Just think about your parents said, Jeremy, take out the trash. And I obey my parents and take out the trash, but my motivation behind it is, is anger. I don't want to take out the trash, man. Super parents make me take out the trash. Or maybe I'm taking out the trash because I know I can be served by getting my allowance or whatever it is. We do this in other areas of life, too. You do just enough to not get fired. You do just enough to not get hassled. You do the right thing, but your motivations may be fear. Your motivations may be guilt. Your motivations may be Pride. Now here's what I want us to see because it's a very thin line that we need to recognize and it doesn't always get recognized in the faith because we often look at the outside and say, well, as long as you're doing right and living right, everything's okay, right? I want us to see that biblically, in light of the gospel, that doing something wrong, disobedience and utter rebellion, and then doing something right with wicked motivations such as guilt, fear, and pride... Those are the same thing. 
Those are absolutely the same thing. Because some of us are here today out of fear. You're thinking, i got to get to church so God doesn't send me to hell. Some of us are here today out of, out of guilt, saying, you know what, I, you know, I've been partying a lot lately, I've got to make up for it by doing X, Y, and Z. Friends, those are two sides to the same coin of human brokenness. Doing something in utter rebellion and disobedience, on the flip side, doing something right, but for the wrong motivations, are two sides of the same coin of human brokenness. And if we fail to see that, we miss out on the beauty of the gospel. We miss out on the joy that in Christ we've been redeemed, rescued, and transformed. We were made for joy, for freedom, for excellence in Christ's kingdom. And so for us to rebel is turning our back on that good news. For us to say, I'm going to do the right thing, but I'm going to do so because I'm a good moral person. Or I'm going to do so because I'm afraid of the fires of hell. Or I'm going to do so because, man, I partied so much in college, I just need to make up for lost time. Those are the flip side of the coin of human brokenness that can be expressed with rebellion or doing the right thing with the wrong motivation. But here is the good news. The good news is that in Christ, we have a new identity We have a new community together, and this prompts a new motivation for worship and obedience. We're no longer motivated by fear, guilt, or shame. We're no longer motivated by pride and self-sufficiency and self-goodness, but we are motivated by the beauty of the gospel, that although our sin may be great, Jesus is greater, that our our guilt may be strong, but Jesus is stronger. And if you miss that, you miss the gospel. And you could be a really good, upright citizen of planet Earth and be totally distant in Christ's unshakable kingdom. And so what I want us to see today is the elements of being part of God's unshakable kingdom that Jesus brings us into because of His goodness, His obedience, His, His motivation to bring honor to the Father and joy to God's people. We get the benefit of a new identity and a new community in, in God's unshakable kingdom together. And this plays out in our lives in two areas. Worship and obedience. So let us look at these two areas today because I want us to see the brokenness of worship and the brokenness of obedience, whether it be disobedience and rebellion or obedience for the wrong motivations. And I want us to see the brokenness in our worship when our eyes, our attention, our affection is somewhere else other than Christ. Okay, first let's look at worship because of God's awesomeness. Verses 28 and 29. We're going to go out of order. Nobody freak out. We're going to start at the end and work backwards to the beginning. Right, Verses 28 and 29 say this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. A pastor once told me, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is that word therefore? 
When you look at the word therefore, it is bringing, it is tying all of chapter 12 together. It is wrapping up everything that we've talked about for the past several weeks and pulling it together and say, since God has done this, since Jesus has done this, since Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, since Jesus uh, adopts us into God's kingdom and we are therefore disciplined as sons and daughters of God the Father, since he shapes us and molds us to be more like Jesus, we are part of this unshakable kingdom as kingdom citizens. Therefore, because of that, let us be grateful. Let's be thankful and grateful to God. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The phrase consuming fire is a throwback to the book of Deuteronomy. If you were a first century Christian, maybe with Jewish backgrounds, you were familiar with the Old Testament. And for the writer of Hebrews to say, our God is a consuming fire, is, is taking you back to the story of the Exodus. Or it's taking you back to God freeing his people from bondage and oppression. It's, it's taking you back to, to see the story of God liberating his people. And despite their rebellion, he loves them and he chases them down. And time and time again, he forgives them and he provides for them and he protects them. And he's leading them and shaping them to be his people, even though they look him in the face and rebel and worship idols and doubt and fear. And God is still a good God to them. See, we, like the first century church, have to, to assess our culture and assess our affection and our attention. You see, being in the first century, you could buy into uh, the, the, the plurality of spiritual life. There are numerous gods you could worship. There were numerous uh, cultural things that you could adhere to. You could, you could worship the, the Greco-Roman gods of the day. You could worship your ancestors of your past. You could live out very cool culture, cultural things. I mean, it was a very uh, time of, of rich culture and stuff. You could serve yourself with pleasure and the pursuit of knowledge and good business. All of the same things that you and I could do today. Friends, when we, that is worth Worship. Worship is whatever occupies your attention and your affection. At its core, at its base level, worship is what occupies your attention and your affection, your mind and your heart. What has, that, what has captured your mind and your heart? Now, in the first century, they're looking at different religions. They're looking at different uh, political situations. They're looking at, at different cultural things. And the writer of he Hebrews is saying, hey, Jesus is not some new leader of some new religion. He's not just one of many gods. He's not one prophet. He's not some great philosophical guy. He is the redeemer of God's people. And it is the same God, the consuming fire God of the Old Testament, the one true God, the same God that freed the people from Egypt and led them to the promised land is the same God that in Christ is freeing people from sin, guilt, shame, death, spiritual bondage, spiritual baggage, shaping them to be his kingdom citizens and a kingdom that is unshakable, unshakable politically, unshakable religiously, spiritually, unshakable with the concept of time. Jesus brings us in to an eternal kingdom. So what does this mean for us in worship? I mean, worship is, is whatever has our mind's attention and our heart's affection. And, and the writer says this. I mean, we should be grateful we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
I mean, you, you look at it, history in the Holy Land in the first and second. I mean, just for centuries before and after Jesus, there's battles and cities being overtaken and invaders coming in. And if, you, if you're familiar with history, by the end of the first century, uh, you know, the... the you just have oppression, you have bondage, you have the Roman Empire that is, that is thriving in that part of the world and then collapses shortly thereafter, right? And all of that is shaken. All of that is falling apart. And the writer says, look, God's kingdom will never be shaken. It's an unshakable kingdom. Therefore, we have a new identity, new security. That means we worship God in light of His awesomeness. We worship God in light of His awesomeness. This means our attention and our affections, what occupies the foremost place in our heart and mind, is God. So when I ask you this today, I mean, first of all, do you believe that in Christ you have been ushered from a, a broken, shakable kingdom into an unshakable, eternal kingdom in Christ? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has adopted you to be citizens of his kingdom? That he has adopted you as a father adopting a child? That in the same way he frees his people in Exodus, he is freeing you from the bondage of sin and guilt and shame, both eternally but here and now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because that shapes how you worship. That shapes what occupies your attention and affection. Today we may not worship statues. We may not worship our ancestors. But I tell you what. You can assess what occupies your attention and affection by what motivates you in life. What has your daily motivation? When you wake up in the morning, what gets you out of bed? It could be anything. It could be something prompted by pride. You can say, look, I've got to get up and, and make sure I'm in good order today because I have a good standing in the community. Right? It's not a bad thing to have a good standing in the community, but if that's the ultimate thing in your life, that's an idol for you. Maybe it's a relationship you have. It may be an unhealthy relationship. Maybe you're dating someone you shouldn't be dating. It could be a healthy relationship, but if it's the ultimate thing in your life, it could become an idol. Right? Maybe it's the pursuit of wealth or fame. Maybe it's the pursuit of status. Whatever has your attention and affection is an idol. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. We have not received a shakable kingdom. We have received an unshakable kingdom. Therefore, let us offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. Our God is a consuming fire. Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So friends, today, whatever your idol may be, it may be uh, the approval of people, it may be a certain number in your bank account, it may be a certain status at your job or standing in the community, whatever it may be, things that could be good, but if it's your ultimate thing... That takes your attention and affection from God. We need to repent. We need to repent. That means to turn away from that thing and to turn toward God and Christ. I can just tell you guys this. I'll level with you because I have nothing to lose. <laughs> An idol for me for the past eight years has been my role as a pastor of the church. That's an idol for me. I have to take seasons of repentance to step back and say, my identity is not a pastor. It's just my role. This is a role. 
I'm a child of God just like you. I'm a flawed human just like you. God is sanctifying me in Christ just like you. I'm growing in my faith just like you. I'm learning. I'm failing. I I fall. I skin my knee. I get back up. And God forgives me and shapes me to be more like Jesus. And I could tell you several years ago when when, um, Redemption Church was called The Well, and we broke the mark from like 15 to like 20 people, I had to like confess to a handful of people that I had the idol of their approval and their acceptance that I thought that my identity was wrapped up in being a church planter because I had some famous pastor's cell phone numbers on my phone and I could call them whenever I wanted. That was an idol for me. And so I had to repent. It's a good thing because in Christ I'm forgiven. In Christ, I know that I'm accepted by God, not because of what I've done, whether it's a good thing like planting a church or pastoring people or going to get two master's degrees in theology. All of that means nothing if that occupies my space and my identity, but rather I need to look to God in Christ and, and be grateful that those good things have nothing to do with my salvation. God just threw that in my life for fun. It's a role I play. I'm not saved because I'm preaching the gospel. I'm not saved because I'm Pastor Richard. I'm saved because God in Christ is gracious. And he has a sense of humor. And he is patient. And he's a consuming fire. That he is the God that looked at Israel and said, I'm hearing the cries of my people who were oppressed. They can't free themselves. They can't save themselves. They can't liberate themselves to walk in freedom and joy. But I can do that for them. And God looked down at this guy in Augusta, Georgia, and said, I'm going to do the same thing to that guy. And he does the same thing for you in Christ. And that's good news. Therefore, that shapes our worship. We no longer worship idols. We no longer worship sin and self. We look at God, our consuming fire, and we worship him in spirit and in truth, conformed not of this world, but transformed in our minds and our hearts to live lives of acceptable worship. You with me? That's point number one. We have a second point, right? The first thing in, in being citizens of God's unshakable kingdom is we see that we worship God because of his awesomeness. We worship God not in fear and not in pride, but we worship God because of his awesomeness as a consuming fire, right? Secondly, I want to see this. I've only got two points today. Oh, breaking the mold here. Second point is this. Being citizens of God's unshakable kingdom means uh, we obey in light of God's promise. So firstly, we worship in light of God's awesomeness. But secondly, we obey in light of God's promise. Because look how this passage begins. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is where biblical prophecy gets a little scary, right? The writer is quoting not only, okay, we saw that that the writer of Hebrews is using a phrase from Deuteronomy to, to describe God, the consuming fire, right? You should read Deuteronomy 4 to get the whole context of God being a consuming fire. Just read, read Deuteronomy 4. It's amazing. But he also quotes here uh, the prophet Haggai. 
from chapter 2 of Haggai, you see that, that God sent numerous prophets before the time of Jesus to, 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 to get the news out of God's incoming kingdom. The, the kingdom that Jesus brings in, the unshakable kingdom that Jesus brings in. So a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus setting foot on the earth, the prophet Haggai is proclaiming a God's coming kingdom. Right? And so God, the creator of the universe, whose voice shakes the heavens and the earth, can with a word flood the planet. With a word created the planet. With a word, he could send fire to burn a city. With a, with a word, he sent his son, the word incarnate, to come and rescue his people. And with a word, he calls us into his unshakable kingdom, an eternal kingdom. One that's not built on politics or religion or culture. And this promise to us is what prompts our obedience. So look with me. Our worship is what has our attention and affection. And what prompts true worship with our attention and our affection is God's awesomeness. Obedience is what we do to obey God's word. And we do that not in our pride or fear. We don't do that out of guilt. We do that based on God's promise. And this is where there's a thin line that we're sometimes afraid to step over because so often we say I want to do the right thing so God will accept me I want to do the right thing because I don't want to burn in hell forever I want to do the right thing because X, Y, and Z Right? I want to do the right thing because I did something bad last night so I'm at church this morning to make up for it I'm glad you're here if that's you but let me release you from that guilt and bondage to know that in Christ your obedience is not based on fear, guilt, or shame. Your obedience is based on God's promise. You see, because verse 25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Right? God, God speaks. He spoke the universe into being. He speaks through the prophets of the Old Testament. He speaks ultimately through Jesus, the Son, who, who the Gospel writer John says is, is the Word of God incarnate, like God's Word putting on a man's suit, fleshed out for us to see and to hear and to know. God speaks today through His Word. His Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God as Scriptures to be written, has preserved them for our benefit today. When you read the Bible and you understand it, it's the Holy Spirit giving you understanding in your mind. When you believe something in faith, it's the Holy Spirit giving you that understanding of faith and, and having your dead heart beat with life. Right? The Holy Spirit speaks to us. The Word speaks to us. God speaks to us. And we obey because of His promises. We don't obey because of guilt. We're not to obey because of fear or shame or pride. It's not a contest who can obey better. It is obedience based on the promises of God. Now you see, in Deuteronomy 4... When you read that today, because you will, right? You're going to go home and say, I need to read Deuteronomy 4. When you read Deuteronomy 4, you will see in the context of God instructing his people to turn from idols. He's, he says, I'm the God that has saved you. I have rescued you. Now obey me. I mean, think about this. God gave the Ten Commandments to his people. 
God gave the Ten Commandments and all of the law to His people after He freed them from Egypt. Do you realize that? God didn't say, you've been in bondage for 400 years, now I'll rescue you if you do these ten things and don't do these things. He didn't do that. He said, you're oppressed, you were trapped, you need rescue, I will save you. Now that I've saved you, I'd like you to live differently. Great freedom in that. How often do we get the cart before the horse? How often do we say, I want God to accept me, I've got to fly straight, do better, try harder. It's okay, I'm not mocking you. I... I still do it myself. I was, oh man, you know, I didn't have my quiet time numerous times this week, right? I mean, I, it was a busy week, and I failed at some of my personal disciplines in prayer and, and whatever. I got up to pray, and as I was getting up to pray, my phone rang, and the alarm was going off at the building at 7 in the morning downtown. I had to go downtown and deal with that. I couldn't pray. I kind of did on the way. My prayer just had a little attitude to it. It was my day off. supposed to be sleeping late today. I'm going to go down the building. I'm not a morning person. And it's still morning, by the way. So, I love you guys. Talk to me about 2 o'clock today. I'll be in a better mood. But I want us to know is that we obey God not out of fear, not out of guilt, not out of shame, but in light of God's promise. And that changes everything for us. So think back to office space. Think back to life being the the mundane, maybe, the routine, the day-to-day. You're in your cubicle, faxing your TPS reports with the cover sheet because you got the memo. Think about living that day-to-day mundane, right? You got people, your coworkers, like some of them kind of annoy you. They're kind of frustrating. You got to put them in your life for some reason. You think it's karma, but it's not. Think about what we do to live life to get through it. I mean, some, some of us just feel stuck, man. You're like, look, I, my life looks different now than I thought I would. You know? Uh, I'm doing enough just to get by. I'm fine. Getting by. Trucking along. You know what I mean? God made you for greatness, for joy, for freedom. He didn't make you to live a life to do just enough to not get fired. He didn't create you to do just enough to not get hassled. Let me tell you something. The Christian life is a community event. You're going to get hassled. There are other Christians you're just going to have to love as part of God's sanctification of you and of them. There are people that are hard to love. There are people that... uh, Some of you have a hard time loving me. That's cool. I have a hard time loving you. I'm just kidding. Some of you. Well, not all of you. Just like one or two of you. I'm just kidding. I don't know what I'm talking about. I didn't have my coffee this morning because somebody stole the filter. I don't know. Anyway, all of that to say is I want us to assess our motivations for worship and our motivations for obedience. I want us to take a step back of our lives and say what occupies our attention and our affection. And if that motivation is not fueled by the grace of God, we need to do a little assessment. If it's fueled by fear or pride, we just need to do a little work together in light of the gospel of Jesus. And we need to assess how we live day-to-day life. If your obedience is to bring honor to the Lord with your work and with your marriage and with your relationships in your neighborhood, that's a beautiful thing. But if your motivation is just to do enough to not get hassled, not get fired, whether that's in your job or school or your marriage, because let me tell you, it's really easy to hit cruise control in relationships, is it not? It's really easy to say, let me just do enough to get by 
and I'm speaking on behalf of every married person probably. I should be. I think I am. It's really easy to hit cruise control and say, hey, man, we've been married for a decade. Let's just, let's just coast with it. No, man, God didn't create you to hit cruise control and do enough just to get by in your marriage. He created you to like be a vibrant, passionate, loving husband, loving wife. He created you to be rock stars in parenting. He created you to be rock stars in your neighborhood. He created you to be rock stars in the workplace, not so that you get all the glory, so that he gets all the glory. And the joy will be, will be pushing back the darkness one kind word and kind deed at a time together. This is what we were created to do. And so I want us to assess our hearts. What has our affection? What has our attention? If it's anything other than God, we need to repent, to turn from it, and to turn to Christ. And what has your, what motivates your obedience? Maybe you're like, dude, I don't obey. I'm a true rebel, man. I'm like an anarchist or whatever. Maybe you're just like so punk rock, you just disobey everybody. Well, you need to, you need to obey, right? But I want you to obey with the motivations of the gospel based on God's promises, the grace of God. I don't want you to obey out of fear or out of guilt or out of pride. Don't obey with a chip on your shoulder. Obey with a changed heart that's full of grace because of God's goodness to you. That's what I want us to see together as a church together. So as we think about that, as we reflect and repent of our sin, we can trust that God is gracious to love us and to free us because our God is a consuming fire. And he's done amazing things for his people. Uh, So pray with me uh, as we conclude. Father God in heaven, thank you for this morning together. God, I thank you that you are an amazing God, that you were that you are a consuming fire. God, that you are the God that breathed the universe into being, that you are the God that can shake the earth and shake the heavens. God, that you in your grace freed your people from bondage in Egypt to lead them to a land of that you had promised them. And God, despite decades of rebellion and griping and sin and idolatry, you were gracious to them. And God, that in the same way, in Christ, you extend that grace to us today. God, that in Christ, we are freed from bondage, from oppression, that we are freed from guilt and shame. God, despite our hearts' idolatrous tendencies and our minds' preoccupation and and God, our rebellious disobedience or our obedience prompted by pride or fear or guilt, God, despite all of that, you are so gracious. And in your grace, you stoop to our level by your Holy Spirit and open our minds to understand the gospel and open our hearts to receive this good news. And by your Holy Spirit, you shape us, you transform us to be more like your son Jesus who redeems us from Satan, sin, and death, and religious legalism and pride. And so, God, I ask that you would do those things among us today. God, for those who don't know you and don't know the gospel, Lord, that you would give them an understanding of the good news of your kingdom, that in Christ we are forgiven of sin, that in Christ we have a new identity and a new community together, and that we are part of an unshakable kingdom. And so, God, for those of us who are not believers in this room, I pray that you would, you would shape uh, their hearts and their understanding. God, for those of us who are believers, who are Christians, those who have been redeemed and saved, Lord, I pray that you would reorient our worship. God, that you would wreck our minds of distractions that pull us away from you, that cause doubts and fears. And God, I pray that you would draw our affections to you, that our ultimate joy would be in you. 
And God, that this would ripple out in our workplace, where we go to school, the neighborhoods in which we live, our families, our marriages, our relationships. God, that amazing things would be prompted because of your awesomeness and because of your promises. So God, I pray that those things would happen, Lord, ultimately for your glory, for our joy, and that the good news of Jesus would indeed go out to the nations. We ask in Christ's good and holy name. Amen.